You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. So welcome to the first seminar Saturday or Saturday seminar. I don't really know what we're calling these things of the semester. Um, you got out of bed before 2 on a Saturday in January when the temperature is below 50 degrees. So I wish I kind of had a medal for you, but um, I hope breakfast and a thrilling conversation about body image is going to be enough. Um, well, this is kind of how we'll structure things. I'll gab for like 20-ish minutes. Um, and then if you look at the back of your handout, there are some questions. Um, so we'll open it up for just kind of like questions as a group if you have any thoughts that you either want to share with everybody or have specific questions for me, maybe need clarification on something. And then um, if you need to run after that, that's totally fine. I don't want to compromise your whole day. Um, but if you do want to stick around and maybe kind of talk through some of those questions on the back of your handouts, maybe just in smaller groups of people. Um, I mean, you can also just kind of talk about it with the friends you came with on your way home. Um, or we can grab coffee and kind of talk about those things. But the questions kind of go into maybe a little bit more of the like nitty-gritty practical details of what this might look like um, and how this might change the way that we relate to ourselves. Um, that all sound good? Feeling good? Okay, sweet. So um, first I really have to give credit where credit is due. Um, honestly, I never really would have thought about these topics or teaching on them until I got a study by a woman named Becca McNeil who used to be on campus staff for RUF. I honestly don't even remember what campus. Um, and the study got sent to us, and I got to, like, tweak it. Um, and then I started seeing a lot of parallel ideas being discussed in my online seminary classes. There's a guy named Dr. Michael Williams. Um, and basically, like, if I say anything that stands out as profound, it was probably said by one of them first. They're both geniuses. Really, really thankful for them. Um, so, yeah, I think it really doesn't take, like, an in-depth sociological study to know or admit that everyone operates out of a base layer of self-image problems. Immediately, I think my mind flashes to the scene in Mean Girls where they're all standing in front of the mirror and they're like, my nail beds suck or I have man shoulders, which are like the most specific things to have problems (laughs) with. But I guess that's kind of why it's humorous. Um, And then also the ever-classic scene in Princess Diaries where she's standing in front of the mirror and she does that little eyebrow raise and says, well, as usual, this is as good as it's going to (laughs) get. We've been told by mothers, our friends, boys, cultural expectations, and even ourselves, probably most harshly ourselves, that we are too much here and not enough there, too big, too crooked, too skinny, asked if we're really going to go back for that second piece of cake, need I go on? Um, And I don't know about you, but often what I'm told in Christian contexts and about how I look is really no more helpful. Um, during my awkward blooming years, which maybe they're still happening, who knows? <laughs> when the girls and the boys are separated at youth group or summer camp, the message that I always got was that we should try to focus on inner beauty and remind ourselves that God loves us for what we truly are, and that's not represented by how we look. Um, one instance stands out in particular from camp just before my junior year of high school. Get this. My cabin and I woke up um, in the morning to find our mirrors covered with, like, literal duct tape and black trash bags. And our counselor is, like, standing there, like, tapping her fingers with, like, a knowing smirk on her face. 
and she quickly informed us that today we are celebrating True Beauty Tuesday, which meant <laughs> we weren't going to look at ourselves as we got ready or went about our day. She literally like blocked out any way for us to see ourselves as we were getting ready. Um, and she filled us with reminders of inner beauty and warned us about self-absorption and vanity. Um, she literally told this to a room of 15 and 16 year old girls at a co-ed summer camp. <laughs> like that, it was quite the dramatic vocal reaction and honestly only mild success. <laughs> but after enough of these talks and exercises, I kind of decided that the Christian response to body image was just to be above it. Um, and I lived like that for a while, but I think suddenly even just like being confronted by these issues, thinking about how to teach them to y'all, um, I realized how lacking that response felt. I wasn't above it. Over the years, I just internalized a lot of discontentment and shame with how it looked. Um, so for honesty's sake, um, here's how I really feel about and treat my body, and maybe you'll, some of this will resonate with you. So sometimes it feels like I'm in control of it, aka if I wanted to stand up and walk to the other side of the room, I could definitely do that. Um, other times, it feels like I have no control over it whatsoever. Say I walk up, or stand up, walk, and trip <laughs> as I'm trying to get to the other side of the room, or I get sick in the middle of finals week. Um, I pull a muzzle, I, um, I mean, even all that growing up we did as adolescents, like, we didn't have any control over it, I didn't give myself permission to stop growing at five, six, and three quarters, that's just what happened, um, and then on the flip side, like, I belittle it, and I blame it when it doesn't get me the attention I want, well, from boys, um, at 25, the question is, I would be married by now, right, if I looked different, or at least I wouldn't be single, um, in college it was, I would have been asked to more formals if I looked different, or, Maybe I would have had an easier time finding a formal date if I looked different. Um, I, I assess it in comparison to pretty much every other woman I've ever met. Thank goodness I don't have that. Or how long do you think I'd have to go without eating bread to look like that? <laughs> um, I celebrate it when I hit a personal record at Cycle Bar, which is most likely to happen if they're bumped in Bruno Mars. Um, I bemoan it when my allergies are at an all-time high. My head feels like it's going to explode. But I never think about it as sacred or something that God cares about. He's really just into saving souls, right? He is all about inner beauty, right? My physical appearance doesn't always match the standards I see around me or what I want, so I treat it like a shell housing what's really important. Um, and as a result, my physical body has been left in my services, not as a temple where the Holy Spirit dwells, but rather the castle of my own kingdom. And let's be honest, it's a failing one at that. Um, it would take time, like more time than we really have to get into this, but... I'm learning that often our view of the physical world around us, not just our bodies, but everything that like we can touch and see, um, has been shaped a lot more by Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher, than it's been shaped by the Bible. Anyone in a philosophy class or had to think about Plato recently? Yeah, so um, here's my best like Ellie Wikipedia version of his philosophy, um, and I think it will sound kind of familiar without you even realizing it. Um, Plato believed in a dualism between the material and the immaterial. And not just like a division so that they were two separate things, but also a hierarchy. So like our personal thoughts, our souls, um, being able to reason something out, um, anything that was unseen, according to Plato, is inherently more valuable than anything that we can see. So anything that's been created, nature, material things, and that includes our bodies. Um, basically what he was teaching is that our souls were so much more valuable that they were kind of trapped in our bodies and they were waiting for some sort of escape from the material world at death. Um, and I think this like platonic dualism or this hierarchical division of the human as soul and then body prioritizes the spiritual at the 
expense of the material creation. Um, and if you really think about it, this has radically shaped the cultural Christian worldview um, with widespread implications. I mean, the whole idea of focusing on inner beauty, I think, is a platonic idea when you really get back to it. Um, but it's not just body image, I think, that's been shaped by this. Um, the environment, mercy, evangelism, like how we care for people. As Christians, we really don't often think about ourselves holistically. Um, and so I kind of have realized that when it comes to beauty in my body and a myriad of other things, I'm hopefully, well, now recovering, but a Platonist. I've told myself that worrying about the physical is nothing more than vanity and a gross attempt to get attention. Um, for years, when it comes to my body, I've operated out of a false, sacred, and secular divide so that I can feel some semblance of control for the things that I don't like. I prioritize and value the inside because I felt like I had more hope of changing it to my liking and using it to God's advantage. Um, and I thought these priorities were in line with God's. But then on the flip side, too, this false, sacred, secular divide kind of gives us a free pass to try to change and manipulate and obsess over our bodies in any way that can bring glory to ourselves. Again, leaving the inside God, stuff to God and the outside stuff to us. Um, and I think it's really easy, too, to read scripture from this default platonic lens. Um, and we can easily see what we want to see and remove our bodies from the biblical narrative. But dualism is not a biblical idea. Um, yet, we are always separating what we want to see as God's things in material soul, and my things, my body, the way it looks, and how I feel about it. This divide is harmful because it makes the scope of God's kingdom and kingship smaller, and it makes our religion simpler. We buy into the lie that I can keep thinking what I want or doing what I want with my body because God doesn't really care about it. But at the end of the day, that's a lie. Um, no area of life is untouched by God's word and reign. No area of our life. We are whole creatures with purposeful embodiment, and the narrative of scripture is way more about God's creation than our worldview is. So let's kind of just over, like, broad, at 30,000 feet, look at the um, narrative of scripture. In the beginning, creation. Genesis 1 and 2, God's good creation is physical and good. It is both of those things. It's a material creation, and he deems it as good. Um, we are made of dust, and embodiment is a huge part of what distinguishes us as humans. Incarnation. God's plan for restoration means that, as Jesus, he comes to be with us in a physical human form. Um, and Colossians 2.9 talks about, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Um, God literally took on a physical body to be with us. Um, resurrection. Salvation for us is accomplished through a physical body. Jesus, as a man, had to die. Um, and Jesus has a body right now, and he will forever. He's never getting rid of his body. Um, we see this clearly in Jesus' interactions with Thomas in John 20, when he, um, Thomas is expressing doubt, and he makes him like touch even like the holes in his hands. So Jesus isn't coming back like the ghost of Christmas past in this like weird kind of like ghostly form, but as like a body that someone to touch and interact with. Um, and then glorification. We will have physical and perishable forms in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, when God restores all things, like he talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, um, having a body is part of that. So God's covenant and relationship with us is physical in nature. Through creation, incarnation, resurrection, and glorification, he shows us that he cares about our bodies and has designed them with purpose and function. God created us as physical forms. He came to us as a human. He intends to raise us into, into another physical form. Our bodies matter to God because they are part of the bigger redemption story, not to be tossed out, um, but a part of renewal. And just as a note, the... Um, Paul's letters in the New Testament are really filled with this kind of like 
dichotomy language of like the spirit versus the flesh. Um, and so I think sometimes we kind of get into our idea and we can feed this like platonic dualism we see based on those distinctions. Um, but when the New Testament or when Paul is making these distinctions between the spirit and the flesh, um, he's really talking about the old and new self. So if you were here last spring, I mean, Matt basically talked about the old versus the new self for a whole semester when we talked about sanctification. Um, but basically when Paul uses the word spirit, he's talking about our new self, who we are in Christ, not just immaterially, not just like our spiritual selves. Um, and when he's talking about the flesh, he's talking about our old self, who we were in sin. Um, so he's not saying that our physical bodies are the problem. Sin is the problem, and it's always been the problem. Um, so I wish we could just blame Plato and the way that he's influenced culture for the way, um, I guess, that our um, Christian worldview has disregarded our bodies. But I think there's also an issue of idolatry and kind of a false understanding of what beauty is at play here as well. Um, Becca McNeil, who wrote that original study, put it this way. She said, The pursuit of beauty becomes an idol because it tells us that God became not enough as soon as he didn't give me all the things that make me happy and feed the idol in my glorious image. We have been taught to limit beauty to only mean something if it serves a particular end, mine. We want the admiration and attention of others. We want the power and security of being pretty so that talking to new people is less intimidating. It doesn't feel like enough to be made by God or even have him care about our physicality. We want to be beautiful in a way that changes our day-to-day. Um, after reading this quote, I can't help but think of 30 Rock. Well, I basically view the world through a 30 Rock <laughs> lens, um, thinking about it all the time. But especially here, because there's this episode called The Bubble, um, and Tina Fey's character starts dating John Hamm. Do y'all know who John Hamm is? If you don't know what he looks like, look him up. Super attractive guy. Um, and as they get to know each other, she realizes that he walks through life in a bubble of sorts. Um, his extreme attractiveness is responsible for the way that he gets away with literally everything. He goes to the hottest restaurant in New York without reservations, and they immediately seat him. Um, he is absolutely terrible at tennis. It's a hilarious scene. But women are falling all over themselves, asking him for lessons. He orders things at restaurants that like, not only aren't on the menu, but are absolutely absurd. And the waiter and the waitresses like, totally oblige him and get it for him. Random strangers on the streets of New York City are telling him how nice he looks today. Calvin Klein walks by him on the street and offers him a modeling job. He smiles, and a cop literally just, like, rips up the parts. Oh, no. <laughs> um, he smiles, and, um, like, the cop literally just, like, rips up the parking ticket he was about to give him. <laughs> and I think this is kind of, like, a perfect way to describe the admiration, attention, and power, and security that idol of our glorious image wants. Um, I mean, it's an absurd example, but I think we kind of want to live in a bubble. Um, we view our comfort... And in this area of life, that means meeting certain standards of prettiness as a key measurement to God being at work, delighting in us, loving us, and as a key measurement for our own success and our worth. Um, But comfort should never be what assures us of these things. God's trustworthiness and faithful character is always our assurance. And God has promised to be in relationship with us. At the heart of that relationship is our ability, because of his love and his grace, to bring him glory and to participate in his mission. God has planned for you and me to live in a particular place and time with specific intentions for redemptive history. And I super easily believe that when it comes to like my spiritual gifts or his placement of me here at UTRUF. Um, but here's where I kind of need to get hit over the head to really have the message sink in. He also wants me to trust that he made me look the way that I do. 
Um, he designed me, Psalm 139 <coughs> affirms this. Um, and however much that conforms or does not conform to the current standard of prettiness is all for the purpose of extending his kingdom, just in the same way um, that my spiritual gifts are. I have to look a certain way for a specific part of the mission to let the world know about Jesus and his gospel. Whoever is attracted to me or not, it's all accomplishing a purpose, and it's bringing glory to God. Um, our bodies are beautiful because they were designed purposefully. Um, so here's kind of like a practical example of this. Um, when I taught this small group last year, one of our friends um, shared through tears that for a long time um, she saw her biracialness as isolating and burdensome. Um, I never really thought about it before. It was really eye-opening for me to kind of hear her talk. But to her white friends, she was white. And to her Indian friends, she was Indian. And it was frustrating because she felt like she was never fully seen as beautiful for being both. Um, and suddenly, though, when we were talking about these ideas, she saw a way that she could understand her biracialness as a means of participating in the kingdom of God, um, participating in his mission. Her physical appearance gives her a unique and a God-ordained way of relating to her white friends and her Indian friends. She's able to bridge gaps and make connections that my appearance doesn't allow me to easily do. Has, everyone, has anyone read Jesus' storybook Bible or know who Sally Lloyd-Jones is? If you don't, like, Barnes & Noble is not that far away. I recommend getting a copy as soon as you can get your hands on one because it really is um, revolutionary. But um, she kind of has this thread throughout all the stories um, that she's telling in the Jesus' storybook Bible. She says, we are lovely because we are loved. Um... Basically, I think what she's getting at is beauty is a result of being loved and created by God for his kingdom purposes and not a result of meeting certain standards. So beauty echoes grace um, like all God things do because it too is not merited. I think what we need to do a better job communicating to ourselves, to, our ch- to each other, to our friends is the clear difference between an elusive prettiness standard dictated to us and what true beauty actually is. Our idolatry of comfort makes us so freaking confusing. Um, so what's the difference? Pretty would be measured through comparison to a standard. It's defined by our culture and few women ever feel like it applies to them. It is merited and marked by striving. And then beauty, on the other hand, is measured by its nature and by its creator. It's a manifestation of God's triumphant purpose. Beauty is cultivated because it's something that's already true of us. Um, so I think the big difference is what beauty is cultivated and prettiness is merited or attempted attempted to be strived for. Um, but I think we also have to address the fact that God's creation is not limited by our aesthetic standards. Not everything God creates is pretty. I mean, I can think of a lot of, like, kind of freaky-looking earthworms. <laughs> I would not say are pretty, but I think that also um, kind of has wider, wide, wide, more widespread implications as well. Um, if you think about the story of Leah and Rachel in Genesis 29 and 30, The whole basis of Jacob's disappointment um, is that he gets stuck with Leah, the less attractive sister. Genesis 29, 16 through 17 literally says, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. I'm not exactly sure what weak eyes means, but I know (laughs) that if that is the way that people were describing me a thousand years from now, like, I would not be thrilled about it. Leah's beauty, however, does not come from Jacob's view of her or how she fares in comparison to her sister. Um, But God uses her in remarkable ways. Um, Leah gives birth to a son named Judah, and he's who starts the family line that eventually brings us Jesus. Like, how beautiful is that? Beauty is God's loved and lovely creation living out his narrative. 
Um, I mean, we also see this in Jesus as a human. Isaiah 53 tells us that he had, um, that we wouldn't actually have been like attracted to Jesus based on any standard of prettiness. This is the Bible. It's saying that Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Yet, I can think of nothing more beautiful than Jesus and what his embodiment accomplished for us. When it comes to our desire for beauty, our culture and our hearts have settled for prettiness that serves and advances our own kingdom instead of the beauty designed by God to serve his mission. Um, And not only does this mix up and wound like the way we see ourselves, but it also impacts the way that we relate to others. Um, Merit and striving-based things like prettiness are only at rest when they can prove their worthiness by being better than something or someone else in whatever way. So when we're captivated by a standard of prettiness, we are certainly not relating to others or ourselves as God's creation, but through a lens of assessment and competition. Um, Without God's perspective, we cannot see others and ourselves as citizens of his kingdom. The gospel is the last thing on my mind when I'm comparing myself to the girl next to me on the bike at Cycle Bar. I don't really care about her her eternal soul. I just want her looks, or I'm really thankful I don't look like that, as horrible as that sounds. Um, If you participated in freshman Bible study, or um, sorry if you're a freshman now, we're getting to this in the next couple weeks, so it's a little bit of a spoiler. But in the Sermon on the Mount, we talk a lot about the way that we relate to people um, and how that can wrongly take them out of the image of God and instead put them in our own image. So, i.e., like our anger sees people through the lens of our expectation and our standard, not through the lens of the way that they're serving God's kingdom. Or our lust puts people through the lens of our desires and doesn't put them through the lens of being image bearers. So far removed from their identity as image bearers, we are unable to see God-given purposes and their God-given beauty. Um, Again, last year when we did this in the sophomore girls' Bible study, sweet Olivia Pfeiffer, um, kind of after sitting here thinking about the games that we play and the assessment and comparison, um, and really just like putting the standard in general, she kind of likened um, the way that we are living, seeking out um, prettiness as that game for kids where you're trying to match like the circle block into the circle hole. Some of them kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, except the problem is like we're not all circles. Like God has created triangles and diamonds and rectangles, and we don't all fit into that hole. Um, we don't all fit the elite standards that have been esteemed as worthy and attractive. Um, so if that's the game that prettiness is trying to play, what game is God trying to play? Um, well, in contrast, I think true beauty, a.k.a. what God has created, and what God has told us that we're the pinnacle of, Psalm 8 reminds us of that, is a kaleidoscope, I think, displaying God's glory. Each stone is beautifully unique, working and dwelling together as creatures with the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Beauty can only reflect God through diversity. Um, there's a man named Derek Kinder, and he wrote a book about Ecclesiastes, um, and he's when he's talking about um, 311, which I included in your handout if you want to take a look at it, but he uses this kaleidoscope imagery. He says, There's a kaleidoscope movement of innumerable processes, each with its own character and its period of blossoming and ripening, beautiful in its time and contributing to the overall masterpiece of one creator. Um, and then Dr. Williams, my seminary professor, in a book called Far as the Curse is Found, he said, As the good creation of God, the cosmos displays order, symmetry, and harmony rather than chaos, accident, or trial and error. Uh, trial and error arrangement. Each element and creature receives a divinely designed place and function. Yet for all its harmony and order, creation exhibits intended diversity. I love that. Diversity that's intended. Um, personal and cultural standards for beauty limit the diversity of God's intention and creation. 
In God's purposes, true beauty is not a slave to relativism or this idea that we get to determine what's true, but a reflection of God in us. Our souls know beauty because they were created in God's image and he made us beautiful. I think, I mean, anytime you've listened to a song or like seen a sunset, we know that we are able to identify what really is beautiful based on like who God has, what God has made to be beautiful. Um, So really the process of sanctification then becomes our journey back to the beautiful way that God made us. It is the process of continually freeing our understanding from, of beauty from narrow and shallow, shallow aesthetic standards and experiencing the richness of what God intended for creation and the role we get to play as a part of it. Um, so when I think back to that ridiculous True Beauty Tuesday exercise from camp all those years ago, I really see um, a huge disconnect. <laughs> beauty is not a result of covering up mirrors so we can pre- pretend to shake off caring about our outer appearance and focus on what's on the inside. Instead, it means looking at ourselves and looking at others with humility and gratitude for the way that our appearance reflects the beauty of God's purposes among us. Um, The way that the beauty reflected around us is all for the advancement of his kingdom. Shaking off the standard of prettiness, though, is not a one-and-done kind of task. I don't expect you to have come this morning and will never struggle with body image ever again. Um, I think this is a real body of Christ effort. And to me, nothing demonstrates the power of the body of Christ for change more than this scene from what I would argue, despite its recent Oscar nomination snub, is the most important film of 2018. Um, Won't You Be My Neighbor, about the life and work of Fred Rogers. Anyone else get wrecked by this movie? (laughs) Oh my word. Um, So there is a beautiful scene um, where one of Mr. Rogers' puppets, Daniel the Tiger, is expressing deep self-doubt in a song. And when I say beautiful scene, like, I taught this recently to campus staff, and I couldn't even say the lyrics without crying, so we'll see how this goes. Um, He sings, Sometimes I wonder if I'm a mistake. I'm not like anyone else I know. When I'm asleep or even awake, sometimes I get to dreaming that I'm just a fake. I'm not like anyone else. I mean, good grief. Like, it's this ridiculous little puppet tiger. But um, (laughs) watching this movie, even just thinking about it, I'm on the verge of tears. Um, Is that not our dialogue when we look at ourselves in the mirror? Um, Sometimes I wonder if I'm a mistake. I'm not like anyone else I know. When I'm asleep or even awake, sometimes I get to dreaming that I'm just a fake. I'm not like anyone else. Um... And immediately, another character, Lady Aberlene, steps up with a song of reassurance. And her response says, I think you are fine just as you are. I really must tell you, I do like the person that you are becoming. When you are sleeping, when you are waking, you are my friend. Um, Things in the movie pause, and they cut to an interview. And when the scene returns, I think everyone is kind of expecting some sort of resolution, where the tiger hears his friend's words of comfort and immediately feels better. Um... But Fred Rogers is way more in tune with the human heart than that. There's no real resolution. Um, Instead, the song becomes a duet, and the entire audience is reaching for the tissue boxes. Daniel's doubts and Aberlene's love are sung together, so Daniel's heart is fully heard and yet comforted still. And it's absolutely stunning. Um, And it has drastically changed my expectations and approach to myself and others. Um, Love should not drown out doubt. Um, they should be sung together so that one can be fully understood and one can be fully unexpressed. And then what can true, what can be, what is true can always be reminded. Um, when it comes to beauty, we can't just tell ourselves to shake the standards of prettiness, shake off the standards of prettiness that have trapped us. Taylor Swift is no help to us here. Um, we can't just point out to people that their worldview is more in line with Plato than with scripture. We have to be with each other, um, 
in the wrestling and let doubts and fears be fully expressed and then met with and reminded of what is true. A lot of the practical stuff we have questions about too aren't directly addressed by scripture. So we're left with a lot more gray area than we honestly would typically want. There's no Proverbs 32 that tells us a direct meditation or advice on how to get ready in the morning or how to approach bathing suit season. (laughs) Cultivating beauty um, as opposed to meriting prettiness is not exact. The Bible is not about giving advice. Instead, it's about believing the good news of who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us and how living in that narrative changes everything, even the way we relate to our bodies. Beauty and body image are really wisdom issues. And what that means is it's an issue where we use the gospel and the biblical narrative to make decisions about things that the Bible doesn't really explicitly address. Um, So wisdom is not having the ability to read God's mind, as Tim Keller says, but it's having his mind as we go about making decisions. So we make decisions with his love, with his grace, with his mercy, with his order, with his diversity, um, as we engage in topics that are more like fine arts as opposed to exact sciences. Um, there is a line from the new Beauty and the Beast that came out a couple years ago that really stood out to me. Um, Belle, I think it's in a song. She says, I was innocent and certain, and now I'm wiser and unsure. Um, I feel like uncertainty and wisdom are things that we don't really put together, but I think that's actually a pretty biblical view of what wisdom actually is. Um, it's okay to trial and error. It's okay to take some time to navigate um, what wisdom and believing the gospel looks like in response to how we view ourselves and cultivate beauty. Um, scripture defines wisdom. It, scripture defines wisdom in a number of ways, and so as we close, I thought it might be helpful for us to kind of just take a closer look um, at what wisdom is, and then we can dive into questions. Sound good? Um, so Job twenty-eight says, "God understands the way to it, and He knows its place." it being wisdom. Uh, For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So Job is telling us that wisdom leans on God's infinite understanding, um, his power, his ability to create, uh, and it remains in awe of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is basically just acknowledging how glorious and awesome he is, um, who he is and what he created. And then there's 1 Corinthians 1 um, that tells us, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So wisdom from God's perspective is going to look really different than the cultural expectations around us. Sometimes it might even look like foolishness. James 1 tells us, um, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given um, to him. So wisdom is something that we're invited to ask for, which I think is so important. Um, You could literally just sit there and pray for wisdom, and God um, wants to give to all without reproach. Um, And then James 3, I think this is my favorite because it's just using words that I would not typically associate with wisdom, but ends up being such a powerful image. Um, James 3 says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Um, So I think a lot of us have kind of become afraid to talk about body image because it seems so trivial, something that we should have aged out of or something that a real Christian shouldn't struggle with anymore. Um, But I encourage y'all to trust that God's goodness is enough to really address and meet us in our discontentment with how we look and to create spaces for these discussions. Um, 
But he wants to give us wisdom to approach our embodiment as another way to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Um, And thanks be to God for that. So let's get this duet going, confessing our doubts and reminding each other of what is true about our bodies and God's deep and abiding love. Okay, thank you.